On this episode, I'm joined by not one, but two fantastic guests. They are tour guides and authors, authors of a new book about women's history in Washington, D.C. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because it's a topic that, as a tour guide, I feel like I should know more about, and thanks to this book, now I do. I've been a tour guide for a while, and truth be told, my signature tour is a tour of the monuments and memorials in D.C., which are almost exclusively monuments to men in history. So I am really grateful for this book because it's not just a guidebook, it's a storybook, and the stories helped me learn about people and places that I'd seen before but didn't really know that much about. The book also gave me the inspiration to seek out places that I didn't know existed. So if you're the kind of person looking to go beyond the surface level of Washington, D.C., I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today, I am joined by Rebecca Grawl and Caitlin Kulajira, authors of the book, 111 Places in Women's History in Washington That You Must Not Miss. If you want to pick up a copy for yourself, I will have links in the episode's show notes to atourofheron.com, where you can buy online, or some local bookshops here in Washington, D.C., where you can find it too. Now, I've mentally organized this episode into three general sections. The first is women's history sites and stories that people might already know about. The second is women's sites and stories that people might not know about, or what I like to call the hidden gems, because people love hidden gems. And finally, I noticed that in the book, there are quite a few stories based in hotels, and I thought it would be cool to talk about some of the places where people might like to stay if they're into women's history and want something different than your standard corporate Hampton Inn or Homewood Suites kind of hotel. One last tip is that when you do buy the book, there is an amazing map at the end, which shows the location of all the places mentioned. And I'm a bit embarrassed to admit, I didn't know about this until I was finished with the book because I sat down and read it straight through. So don't miss out on this great resource. Okay, let's jump into the first site, which is one that I see and show a lot of people on my own monuments tour, and it's to Eleanor Roosevelt, who has her own statue at the FDR Memorial. What I thought was interesting is that, in the book, you focused on her job as a newspaper columnist, even though that was just one of the many things she did. So I was hoping you could speak about why you chose to do that and also give some context as how Eleanor wound up with a statue in a presidential memorial. I think everybody knows Eleanor Roosevelt to some degree, right? We recognize her as a first lady. We often quote her and she definitely had a presence in the White House um, that is, 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 you know, a legacy. As I was thinking about how to present her in this book and put it in terms of places and history, it occurred to me that Eleanor Roosevelt was a historian and she documented so much of uh, what was happening at the time of the Roosevelt administration. 
And when we think about visibility and what it means to have representation, I think one of the reasons why we're so familiar with Eleanor Roosevelt is because she wrote these columns called My Day nearly every single day for decades. And she was connected to the people in that way. So um, as a historian, I wanted to highlight another woman that was telling women's, telling all history and documenting it. And then it became, well, what did she write about? Were there any specific moments that would connect with the, the memorial? And it occurred to me, like, what did she write when FDR had passed away? Because now you're not just telling the story of a first lady, you're telling the story of a grieving wife. You're telling the story of a very personal moment and uh, just like an inside look into how she might've been dealing with that. And so if you read the book, you'll notice she actually took a few days off from writing for the first time um, in history. And then when she came back, she had these really intentional words about what she wanted her legacy, which, sorry, what she wanted FDR's legacy to be. You know, what she felt like he left in this world for all of us. And so when you walk through that memorial, FDR's presence is very known and it's interpretive in that we can try to make sense of his impact on the world. But I wrote that as a way of saying, here's a woman, she documented not only public history, but personal history as well. And let's think for a moment, being in her shoes and what it meant for her to lose her husband, to lose a member of her family, and then show up to the public and share those feelings with us. So that's um, where I started with it. And then just one more little kicker is I really wanted to make a connection with her and Mary McLeod Bethune because they had a wonderful relationship and they're, one of, they're both the only two outdoor memorials of American women in Washington, D.C. I'm really glad Caitlin mentioned that because I was going to jump in and say one of the things I love about the book and one thing that ha happened both with purpose but also often spontaneously as we were developing our chapters and sharing them and sort of building the book is how quickly the connections between sites were built. And so I, particularly as a tour guide, especially if you're working with students or you're with a group for a long period of time, you're always trying to find those connections and kind of build those layers. And I loved how easy it was with this book to find those points of intersection and those points where one site tells a story of another site tells a story of another site. And uh, the Eleanor Roosevelt chapter is a great example of that because Eleanor and Mary McLeod Bethune have those two American women statues on public land in DC. So if you're gonna go find the statues of women, those are probably the two you're gonna find and they actually have an incredible connection. So I encourage those that are reading through the book, whether you're doing it chronologically, whether you're reading it alphabetically, whether you're opening the map and jumping around, definitely look for those connections and intersections because uh, there's quite a lot, uh, both intentional and sort of unintentionally that came up as we worked on it. What I think is really fascinating and the reason I like the book and the reason I like it when you come to Washington, D.C., is that there isn't just one tour of the monuments or one tour of the National Mall. Because when I give the tour, I get to the statue of Eleanor Roosevelt, and I talk about her as the first U.S. delegate to the United Nations because there's literally a U.N. logo behind her. But that's different from the story you just told. And they're both great stories, and they both show different sides of Eleanor that you might not know if you only took one tour or you only wandered around and looked at the statues on your own.
Yeah, I just want to add one more thing about this chapter. I encourage all of our readers to read the tips as well. So the tips are uh, logistics, but they also offer insight to a relevant place. So thematically or, or geographically. This particular tip for Eleanor Roosevelt is highlighting the final resting place of Cokie Roberts, who is buried in Congressional Cemetery. Now we have a Congressional Cemetery chapter that uh, highlights uh, Anne Royale, but um, we wanted to include Cokie Roberts. And so I want just people to recognize the connection even between Eleanor Roosevelt and Cokie Roberts being journalists and writers and women who really left us with publications and words to reflect back on history with. Great tip. Thank you for that. Now, I think you mentioned that there are only two statues of women in Washington, D.C. on public land, and they are both two specific historic people like Eleanor Roosevelt. But another statue that is on my tour that is of women, but not specific women, is at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I find the story fascinating because everybody knows the Vietnam Wall. No one is surprised when we get to that. And it opened in 1982. But the Vietnam Women's Memorial didn't open until 1993. So why such a big gap in time and why did it take 11 years to get this built? So we are we were looking for the story below the surface and I found this woman, Diane Carlson Evans. And looking back, I don't know how to even say this, but like you can't tell the story of this memorial without mentioning her. She's so influential and significant in this decade-long fight to secure this memorial. And her story is embedded in, in, you know, that bronze sculpture that you see. Now, we also mentioned Glenna Goodacre, who's the sculptor and the artist. And of course, her story is relevant as well. I think one of the things that Becca and I and the whole team at A Tour of Her Own tries to do is pull a little bit away from these um, allegorical figures. So women that don't actually have a, a, a proper identity, you know, in the Vietnam Women's Memorial, we talk about hope and faith and charity, and those are all beautiful. And there's a time and a place for that. But we really wanted to highlight real women that are doing the work behind the scenes. And so for me, the Vietnam Women's Memorial is about, uh, you know, Diane Carlson Evans, and I hope that people will start to recognize that. It always pains me a little when guests come on tour with me and they might have been to D.C. before. Maybe it was on a business trip a few years back or maybe it was on an eighth grade field trip when they were young. But one thing a lot of them say is that they vividly remember the Vietnam Wall, but they do not recall ever seeing the Women's Memorial. And my hunch is that after you visit the wall, you're coming down that path. And if you turn left, you're going to miss it. So it's one of those things where even though it's right there, it's one that people often comment to me that they weren't expecting. And um, even if you do, I think, walk by it, there's not a ton of context presented with the memorial independently. And this is obviously why we're all such advocates for going with a tour guide, booking a tour, having someone knowledgeable share these sites with you. Because if you're on your own, you might see this beautiful work of art and this beautiful sculpture, and you can see the beauty of it. But you're not going to see anything about Diane Carlson Evans. You're not going to see information, in-depth information about the thousands of women who went abroad, volunteers, women who chose to go and be a part of this war. You're not going to hear about all the women through the Red Cross who are going to provide uh, emotional and recreational sort of support uh, for the men serving in the war. So 
even if you see this beautiful memorial, that context isn't well represented in signage or in any sort of didactic material on the National Mall. And that's, I think, a big part of why we are such advocates for what we do in our industry is we can help bring those stories to light that you're just not, you literally will not be able to find unless you think to stand there and start Googling and start researching while you're at on the site. And who does that on vacation, right? No one. I mean, some of us do, but <laughs> tour guides the, do average, that the average traveler. <laughs> now, I want to pivot the discussion a little bit to one of my favorite events, one of many people's favorite events, and that's the National Cherry Blossom Festival, which happens every spring. I have told the story of the D.C. Cherry Blossoms so many times that I feel like I've kind of lost touch a bit with the fact that one of the main players is a woman who gets almost no formal credit. And unless you have a tour guide telling you who she is, you might not ever know. So can you introduce the audience to who she is and the site of the planting of the first cherry blossom trees on the Tidal Basin? And why is she not there? When we were breaking down the sites in this book, I was like adamant that we do the cherry blossoms because Eliza Skidmore is a woman that I talk about extensively on my Tidal Basin tours and my cherry blossom tours. And it is such a shame and really, I think, a, a huge Um, gap that's missing when we talk about the cherry blossoms that there's no formal acknowledgement of her anywhere on any plaque or signage around the tidal basin. Um, But Eliza Skidmore is really the woman that sets us on the path to get the cherry blossoms. And she is a fascinating woman in her own right. She was a world traveler. She was a writer an explorer. Her uh, brother was a diplomat. And so Eliza Skidmore never marries. She kind of uses her brother's career as an opportunity to go places that the average woman in the late 19th century wasn't able to go. Um, She would be the first woman to sit on the board of the National Geographic Society. And starting in 1885, she begins kind of this one woman campaign to really bring Japanese cherry blossoms to Washington, D.C. And she's just tenacious about it. She writes letter after letter after letter. She's a smart, connected society woman. And yet, no matter how hard she tries, she's just ignored until 1909 when the Tafts go to the White House, Helen Nellie Taft, who's one of my all-time most favorite first ladies, we talk about her on my first ladies tour with Toho, um, she gets into the White House and she gets one of these letters that Eliza's been writing to everybody saying, hey, we should do this. And Helen Taft immediately sees an opportunity for a fantastic public beautification project. She sees an opportunity for cross-cultural connection. And it's really once uh, Taft and Skidmore are connected that from 1909, it's only really three years later uh, when we actually get the cherry blossoms that we see and enjoy today. And um, Eliza Skidmore was the only private citizen recorded to be there when the first cherry blossoms were planted. Um, She would continue to really be an advocate for their preservation for the rest of her life. And yet when you go today and you go to that site where those first trees are planted, there's just no mention of her at all. And um, it was just so important to me that we use a chapter in this book to tell her story. And I mean, I could have written a whole book on Eliza. I could have written a whole book on Helen Taft, but I really wanted to be sure that that cherry blossom story highlights because, I mean, that's one of the number one things that brings people to Washington, D.C. is to go see these beautiful trees. And they're there because of the tenacity of one woman. If you haven't been over there, the site of the planting of the first cherry trees is on the north side of the Tidal Basin near the Japanese Lantern. And I've been over there many times, and I guess I never really read the plaque closely enough to realize that Eliza Skidmore is completely omitted from the story. I'm curious if you know, or wish to speculate, people who were around 110 years ago, 
Who did they think was responsible for bringing the cherry trees to Washington, D.C.? Probably a man. They just assumed a man did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's 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 one of those, I think, a little bit of a tricky sitch, right? Because the whole gifting from Japan, it's diplomatic. There is a huge diplomatic element. So you want to pay tribute to the nation that has gifted us this trees. And that's a lot of what the signage kind of indicates this wonderful uh, kind of international brethren feeling, which is lovely. But um, it really just sort of ignores that there was somebody for 25 years really pushing um, to bring these trees there. And, and someday, uh, I think Toho would really love to push the drive of some sort of marker or memorial to Eliza Skidmore so that her story can be better recognized and acknowledged by visitors to those beautiful trees. That would be something if you could make it happen. The next category of stories are what I bookmarked as the hidden gems, or the sites that people might not know about. The first one is, I think, really important, and until I read the book, I will shamefully admit I was kind of ignorant about. It's the Belmont Paul National Monument near the Capitol, and it's an important one. It's called a national monument, but it's not really like going to the Lincoln Memorial or Jefferson Memorial, so what exactly can people expect when they visit? Yeah, when we were kind of breaking out the book too, this was, we made lists of like sites that we were automatically like, these are definitely going to be on there. And Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument, which is the official title, was a must include for us um, because I think so much of the women's history we do talk about and learn is wrapped up around the suffrage movement and the fight for the 19th Amendment. And uh, this building was the headquarters of the National Women's Party. This was the organization that was the primary sort of driver behind that final push for the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment. In the chapter specifically, we really used this as an opportunity to talk about Alice Paul, who had been part of NASA previously, which was another women's suffrage organization. Alice Paul is really uh, kind of the driving force behind the 1913 suffrage um, parade, which is the first major political demonstration to take place in Washington, DC. Uh, she and Lucy Burns are eventually going to found the National Women's Party to be this sort of more radical, more aggressive wing of the fight for suffrage. And then after the passage of the 19th Amendment, the thing I love most about Alice Paul is she's not like, great, women have the vote, check, we're good, everybody go home. Alice is like, now the real work begins. Getting the vote for Alice was the beginning of the story, not the end. And she immediately is going to launch into what will occupy the rest of her life, which is to fight for the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. And a lot of the work for the ERA is done in this building on Capitol Hill. They're going to move the National Women's Party headquarters there um, to this beautiful history historic house that's just a block from the Supreme Court. So it really is right in the core of kind of federal uh, Capitol Hill. And she is going to live there until the 1970s. She is going to literally spend the last 50 years of her life uh, advocating for the ERA, but also just for women to be included in legislation in um, sort of civil rights legislation and equality. We mentioned the United Nations earlier with Eleanor Roosevelt. When the United Nations is developing and creating the founding documents that will make the UN, it's Alice advocating to make sure women are included as a protected class and that women's equality um, and equity is part of the vision of the United Nations. So um, it's an incredible historic site. The site certainly focuses on the women's suffrage story, which is so key. Um, but Alice lived in this house and worked in this house for really like the last uh, 45 to 50 years of her life. And so Alice's story really comes alive there. Um, President Obama is the one who designates it a national a national monument in 2016. So it's a really new site. If you're a big national park 
enthusiasts, which I know a lot of DC visitors are, and you love your um, park passport, you love collecting your ranger badges, there's a special suffrage badge that you can get there at um, the Belmont Paul House. And it's one that I definitely encourage people to make time to see because it just tells such an important story. In a way, it's like a museum monument hybrid. Yeah, it's a historic house. Um, it's more like a national park site, similar to like Cedar Hill, which is Frederick Douglass's home in Anacostia, which we definitely mention as a tip. Uh, Frederick Douglass, such an outspoken advocate for women's suffrage in his lifetime. Um, so when you visit the Belmont Paul uh, Women's Equality National Monument, um, you will typically go um, and there are park rangers there, just like you might see out on the National Mall. What makes these park rangers unique is to be here at the Belmont Paul. You do a special series of trainings. These are rangers that um, have chosen to be at the site as opposed to rotating through a series of DC sites. So they're very strong advocates for telling women's history and sharing these stories. And you literally get to go into the rooms where these women were writing letters to congressmen and where they were making banners and making signs. And you can see the banners they carried in the 1913 march. And you can see the newspapers and the pamphlets and the letters that they created. And you're doing it all within this house that has stood on Capitol Hill since the very beginning of the 19th century. Um, so it's a really sort of remarkable layer of history that sort of gets presented there. Now, a very short walk down the street is the Supreme Court. And historically, when people have asked me about visiting, I usually ask them, are you a lawyer or are you a law student? Because for folks who aren't, it's usually not a top site of interest. But after I read the book, I thought maybe I should rethink that question. And maybe I should start asking people if they're interested in the women of the Supreme Court. There is a portrait of Sandra Day O'Connor. And as a non-lawyer myself, before I read the book, all I really knew about her was that she was the first woman justice. But there's so much more to that. So what can we learn about her when people are visiting D.C.? Yeah, I'd love to touch on what's inside the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor's life, and also how we approach this chapter. I think all three are important. Um, there is a beautiful portrait of Justice O'Connor hanging in the Supreme Court right on the main floor that visitors um, can see. It's pretty accessible. But behind that, there's almost an entire exhibit for her as well that is a bit hidden. If you're just going in and out of the Supreme Court, you could miss it. So you really have to go in there with the intention of finding this. There's a bust of her head. There's all different photos of her with various presidents and, uh, and, and dignitaries. It's, it's quite remarkable. And I think it is one of the places in the city that does show um, uh, respect to women's history um, in a very tangible way. So I would encourage people to go and explore that. Um, to your point, I also did not know much about Justice O'Connor. And, you know, she was a first, and that's an extraordinary accomplishment. But also, um, when we share women's history, we're, we're always kind of questioning how much emphasis we want to put on the first, right? Because at that point, there were several other women who had followed in her footsteps. And, you know, just because you're the first doesn't mean you might have the biggest legacy, or you might not have accomplished so much like there's, there's so many factors, right? In this situation, I think her legacy as being the first really is something that all judges and justices and American people should look back on and, and reflect with. If you read the chapter, I started off being very direct with statistics and numbers to kind of start grounded, right? To give this a level of 
perspective as to what it meant to be the first. So let me just give you a few numbers here. Prior to Justice O'Connor being uh, confirmed to the court, we as a country went through 191 years with all men serving on the court, 191 consecutive years. And in that time, we saw 101 male justices. So she's really stepping into a system here and showing up in a way that, of course, there's going to be a lot of, of weight to carry with that and responsibility. While it's a great accomplishment for her to serve and as well as the other um, female justices to follow, you'd have to write this chapter and recognize how hard it was for her to get there. And I think that this story is often told through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's perspective, but Sandra Day O'Connor had gone through the same exact thing. And at this time, uh, another statistic I put in here was just 2% of students in law school were women. And when they were coming out, the discrimination was unbelievable. I mean, and blatant, like, we're not going to hire you because you're a woman and you need to go take care of the kids. You want to make money, go sell baked goods. Like that is what we're talking about. So it's the persistence and the perseverance that I think is so remarkable uh, from her like a career judicial perspective, right? But when we think about, when I think about Supreme Court justices, right? It's like, they're in a black robe. It's very official. This is the highest court of the land. It's a lifetime term. I mean, this is no joke, right? And what we try to do with these stories is make it approachable. So I didn't want Sandra Day O'Connor to be someone that was distant from us. I really wanted her to be a relatable character because as I was reading her, I was like, I didn't know this. Oh my gosh, she's so cool. How neat. And I wanted the reader to, to feel that. So as you go deeper into the conversation, uh, sorry, into the chapter, um, there's a few fun, fun little like ditties about her, you know, for one is she's a mother, she's raising children. She had to take time off from work to, uh, to, to bring up her kids and then make the decision to go back, which is something that we are still working with in society and trying to figure out. Um, and then I found this one kicker that like you have to put in the chapter, right? And it's this reference to uh, Julia Childs and how the justice used to use her recipes to cook. And we also have a chapter um, about Julia Child. So that just seemed uh, really, really relevant. And um, when we were writing this chapter, you know, we wanted to kind of do an overview of different uh, Supreme Court justices, or we wanted to just really paint it in a way that felt relatable and like you kind of understood what the position was. And um, Justice O'Connor was really the best way to uh, highlight that and share that message. It is worth saying that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is included in your book as well, but if we talked about every single book chapter in this podcast episode, it would wind up being longer than a Ken Burns documentary. So the audience will just have to pick up a copy and read it if you want to know about that. Now, I want to take the audience to the other side of the Capitol, to the U.S. Botanic Garden. Prior to reading this book, if someone had asked me if there was any monuments to the First Ladies, I probably would have said, well, there's a statue of Eleanor Roosevelt that we already discussed, and... I would have considered the First Lady's Water Garden at the U.S. Botanic Gardens not really a monument, but now that I've learned more about it, I think if someone asks me this question again, I'm going to say, yeah, yes, there is a monument to the First Ladies. So what exactly is this water garden? 
And I'll just, I'll be honest. I, when I started this book, I had no idea that there was a first lady's water garden. I've been to the United States Botanical Gardens. I've walked the grounds. I've been there. And it just never registered to me that there was a designated space within um, the botanical gardens that was specific to first ladies. That was something that Caitlin brought to my attention and, and that another guy had brought to my attention. But it is, people do ask all the time, like where are first ladies honored? And this is one of the ways. So I think the story of this is kind of remarkable. In 1994, six of the seven living first ladies got together. So we're talking about Lady Bird Johnson and Rosalind Carter and Betty Ford and Barbara Bush and Hillary Clinton uh, and Nancy Reagan. Uh, the only reason Jackie Kennedy Onassis isn't there is she's too ill to attend, but she signs off in support of this endeavor. But these living first ladies get together and they attend an event to start to fundraise for an element of the botanical gardens that acknowledges the first ladies. And we do an entire tour at Toho on the first ladies. Um, it, it's fascinating when you really think about what a first lady is. Lady Bird Johnson says that a first lady is an unpaid uh, a public official elected by a constituent of one, her husband, right? Um, Michelle Obama described it as being in sort of this sidecar to history, like you're along for the ride, but you're not driving the vehicle. Um, you come into this role, there's a, usually an incredible amount of public scrutiny, uh, and yet you are not being paid for your work, but you're expected to to do something. And no matter what you do, you're sort of facing a lot of criticism and um, I think judgment on what a first lady is or isn't. And so for all of these women to come together and sort of say, we think we should be acknowledged in some way, I think that's really, really special. Now that's 1994. It's going to take about 12 years for this to actually be fundraised, developed, and created. It's a great example of a public site that honors women's history and their legacy. But again, there's not a lot of contextualization. It's a beautiful public space. The garden itself is inspired by Martha Washington's quilting pattern. So the quilt pattern that Martha Washington regularly utilized. I mean, you can see examples of this at Mount Vernon. They have a couple of Martha's quilts, uh, as does Tudor Place actually has a quilt that was done by Martha Washington, which is also in the book in Georgetown. Um, but if you walk through, it's not as though there's a listing of first ladies. It's not as though there's stories of these first ladies presented, but I do appreciate that it's an acknowledgement that there is a series of women in our history that have played this really important, pivotal public role that somehow has no definition in our constitution uh, and does not exist in any official way, and yet we immediately recognize as a key public figure. So it's really kind of a beautiful space, and I encourage people to visit the botanical gardens, but hopefully you'll walk away wanting to know more about the women that um, it sort of represents. And I would personally love to see more representation of our first ladies in public spaces in Washington, D.C. That's one thing I often tell people that absolutely blows their mind is that the Constitution does not talk about a first lady. It does not require a first lady. We've had a widowed president. We've had an unmarried president. And in both of those cases, they found a relative to do the job, but they could have chosen to just not have had one. Or theoretically, a president's wife could choose to not do it. Uh, the fact that we've kind of carved out this job and culturally said, this is what we have to have, it's, it's interesting. But one more exhibit I want to chat about is in one of my favorite museums, the American History Museum. It's front and center, right inside the door. Of course, I'm talking about the Star Spangled Banner, the actual flag that actually flew over Fort McHenry during the War of 1812. 
So how did it come to be, and what's the chapter in your book all about? So um, I will say that while one of the things we often talk about in Toho is a lack of representation of women in outdoor public spaces, memorials, and monuments, I do feel like our museums in Washington, D.C. are a really great resource for people who are really looking for women's history or want to start a journey of discovering more about women's contributions to our history, because I think and we talk about a lot of museums in the book, but I think especially the Smithsonian Institution has done excellent work in integrating and including women's stories throughout their exhibits. So it was kind of hard to just pick one woman and one thing to talk about at the National Museum of American History. Um, I think a lot of people might have done Julia Child and her kitchen, which is so iconic there, but I wanted to do something that was related to what is probably one of the most visited pieces at the museum, which is the Star Spangled Banner. This is the flag that flies at Fort McHenry. Uh, this is the flag that inspires Francis Scott Key to write his poem, which becomes our national anthem. What people may not realize is that flag was made by a woman, as most flags in our nation's history were. Uh, flag making, like a lot of other sort of um, sewing woven arts, were done by women. And so that flag was made by a woman in Maryland named Mary Pickersgill. Um, George Armistead, who's um, sort of the head of Fort McHenry, wants this garrison flag. He wants this giant flag that he's going to fly at Fort McHenry. We're in the middle of this big fight against England, our second war with England. And so he goes to local seams. Mary Pickerskill, and he says, okay, I need this flag. It's going to be huge, um, and I need you to make it fast. So she has to make this flag in about six weeks, which is pretty quick. She has paid a pretty princely sum. She's paid somewhere in the ballpark of like $400, um, which at that time was more than the average person made in a year. So she is given a significant financial incentive to get this done. So this is kind of a life changer for Mary Pickersgill um, to get this commission because financially it kind of sets her up for life. Um, what I love about the story is, you know, she's making this flag. Uh, this flag at the time that she's making it is 400 yards of fabric. It weighs 50 pounds and it's huge, right? It's like almost 40 feet by 40 feet. She lives in a home that's like 20 feet by 20 feet. So how are you gonna make a flag that's twice as big as your house? She has to move to sort of the local tavern, the local pub, and that's where she really completes the work. Um, and she doesn't do it alone. She has help from um, local women to assist her in this. Um, and it's just sort of amazing because when you see the flag today, it's sort of installed, laid out in this super well-preserved kind of museum environment. And you don't think about how big and heavy it must have been and how physical that labor was when she was literally sewing these stars that are, when you look at it, you don't think the stars are that big, but the stars are like bigger than your hand, they're huge. Um, and so I just think about what an incredible physical process she went through to create what is now the inspiration to the song that we sing at every national event, that we sing at every sporting event. And it all sort of began with this woman who just saw an opportunity to make some, some dough that she needed and who was just kind of trying desperately to get this done in six weeks. So I, I really love Mary Pickersgill. Um, and if you visit this exhibit, everybody sort of sees the flag, and once they see the flag, they kind of leave. But there is a nice little section about Mary Pickersgill that uh, has a portrait of her, a picture of her. Um, there's uh, examples of the kind of sewing materials she would have used, and there is a nice representation of her in this exhibit. So I do applaud Smithsonian, not just for this, but really across the board, the work they do in telling women's stories in their spaces. If you ever get a chance to go to Baltimore, you can go to her house, which is now a historic site. 
it's a nice little companion to seeing the flag in the museum, and it will really put into perspective how small that space really is. Okay, now I want to turn to the last category, which are the hotels that feature elements of women's history. Just because of time, we won't get to all of them, but I want to call out that there are four hotels in the book, and they are the Willard Hotel, Hotel Xena, Tabard Inn, and Mansion on O. They all have their own unique stories and history, but the one that caught my attention is Hotel Xena. This is a new hotel brand, but it's not in a new building. So if you came to D.C. in the past, it was previously the Kimpton Donovan House Hotel on 14th Street Northwest. A few years ago, Kimpton sold some of their hotels to other companies. This one was sold, renovated, and rebranded as Hotel Xena. It is themed as a women's history hotel, and unfortunately, I have not gone yet because it opened during COVID and I just haven't been over there yet, but I know you have and have done some of your events there. So what's it like and what can hotel guests expect if they stay there? It's really fun. It's part hotel, part museum, part experience. Um, it has all the you know general hotel stuff. You got food, you got drinks, you got rooms, but you can also just kind of pop in there and explore. I want to talk about it from two perspectives. One, it's also um, accessible for people with disabilities, which I think is really important to note, and um, it is dog friendly. So if you are coming uh, to DC and those are things you are you know looking for, Hotel Xena is also very accessible in that way. Uh, when you walk in, it's really fun. You go to the uh, the front desk and the whole front desk is made of this glass case with high heels inside all colorful high heels which is just something that is fun and fashionable and you know has lots of history uh, with women for sure not to say that you know anybody can wear high heels but it does tend to be traditionally uh, female forward and um you, you really just the walls are covered with um artwork commissioned by local artists some that come to mind are maggie o and uh, rose hoffa but also international artists as well and the highlight probably what they're most known for is this huge portrait of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And as you walk in there, I mean, oh my gosh, you're like taken back by it because it's so exceptional. And the, the, the real highlight is as you get closer, you realize that this Ruth Bader Ginsburg portrait is made of tampons. <laughs> made of tampons. So very creative, uh, definitely a site worth seeing. The hotel is basically created to be one big place to go and get your Inst Instagram posts, you know, you get uh, uh, selfies and just fun pictures. So that's the, the basic setup of it. But I want to go back to this point of, you know, the hotel is the place, but the story is about the woman behind the hotel. And whenever we could, we always tried to just interview the people that were closest to the places. And um, I had the great opportunity of uh, getting on the phone with the hotel designer, Andrea Sheehan of Dawson Design Associates. And she was very intentional, and sorry, intentional about speaking with me because she wanted the hotel to be represented properly. And when speaking to her, I learned about a lot of 
what inspired her to design a female themed hotel. And, you know, we talked about big events. We talked about the Women's March. We talked about Me Too era and Time's Up and Equal Pay. And um, even going beyond that, you know, the significance of the Equal Rights Amendment and how we just have to bring uh, these historical moments into our mainstream and into our culture. So th there's no shortage of stories and women being represented here. And I, I think really Hotel Zena should be a stop on everybody's tour. I'll just mention about Hotel Zena too. One of my favorite things is they have this incredible rooftop bar where you have the pool on the roof and there's a bar up there. And you get this great view, but it's named for Hedy Lamar, which we didn't get a chance to shout out in the book um, simply because um, they had sort of launched that and we'd already sort of done so much in the chapter. But I really love that sort of commitment that Hotel Zena has to women's history uh, at every single level. So the bar's name for Hedy Lamar, this woman who's famous for being an actress, but also was an incredible inventor and sort of technological um, genius uh, that sort of gives us what is Wi-Fi today. Um, she uh, also, when you go and you go to Hetty's bar up top, all the drinks are inspired by Hetty Lamar specifically. Uh, there's great information in their menu uh, about Hetty and that information. They do that across the board. So I really love that when you go there, you're getting this wonderful DC hotel experience. You're getting this great rooftop view and you're getting all of that, but you're also just getting women's history in a way that's accessible and fun and something that you can really digest and connect to. And, and that's something we're a really big advocate for is making history accessible and making it fun. Generally speaking, a lot of hotels in Washington, D.C. are frankly kind of bland. They're big corporate hotels. And just to be clear, most of the time, there's nothing wrong with that. We are not Las Vegas where every single hotel is themed. And it would actually be kind of weird if, like in Las Vegas, we had hotels themed for a circus or Hollywood or whatever. But I feel like for Washington, D.C., this is actually the perfect theme. And your book does have a photo of that Ruth Bader Ginsburg exhibit. But I would not have known uh, just from the photo if you hadn't just explained this to me. And this is a good plug for why you need to not just get this book and read it. You should definitely do that. But then also visit the actual 111 actual sites that are mentioned when you're here because there are things that you will get in real life that text and photos just don't do justice. And with a licensed professional tour guide to make it even better. <laughs> yes, 100%. And with that, I want to give a huge thank you to both Rebecca and Caitlin for joining me for this conversation. Now that everybody wants a copy of your book, I want to ask, where is the best place for everyone to buy theirs? Yeah, we're going to encourage people to go to your local bookshop, um, any of them in Washington, D.C. Many of them are carrying it. If not, you can always ask them to stock up their shelves with 111 places in women's history that you must not miss in Washington, D.C. So support local business. Please go to the local businesses that are mentioned in the book, have drinks there, eat there, and um, help support the sustainability of our wonderful nation's capital. Thank you. Do either of you have a favorite local bookstore? We love them all equally. Yes. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer. <laughs> I purchased mine from a tourofheron.com. So if you want to buy online, skip Amazon. Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more money. Buy direct. But if you do come to Washington, D.C., those local bookstores are great for all kinds of books and other souvenirs. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.